0: Right week three in our visual series. Um, Here's what this whole thing's about. If you're brand new to our church, here's what's going on. We're taking a look at works of art that that communicate the gospel story, the story of Jesus, and we want that visual to stick with you all week long, so that you're tempted. to live out that visual because it's all about reflecting the beauty of Jesus out into our world. And so you guys are experts now at art, right? Because for a couple weeks in a row, I'll show you a picture. I'm like, let's make some observations about it and like figure out what the story is behind the art. So if you're ready to go, it's in your notes. It'll come up on the screen right here. Take a look at this. This picture right here is called The Refusing and it's by Daniel Hernandez. Uh, he, He painted this in 1876. He's a Peruvian artist Let's make some observations about it. Before I share mine, just look at that and decide what you think that that is about, what is happening. Here's what I see. There's a man carrying a painting. See, I'm an art critic. Can you tell already? I'm super good at this. It's just the obvious stuff, right? There's a man carrying a painting. We can safely assume he's probably the artist, right? He's walking away from what? A room full of a building full of artwork, right? So he's probably walking away from a gallery. Notice where his art is painting or is pointing. Inside, he's sheltering it. He's hiding it so that we can't see it. And then look at his face. His eyes are hung low. His face is is down. I believe he's discouraged. Or maybe he is even angry. And then in the background, don't miss this. Look at the guy in the art studio. I'm going to assume that he is the owner, and he's peering at the man walking away. And I I want to do this. Take a look up close. I zoomed in on this one. So there's his face. When I see his face, I see him smiling or smirking. At the man who's walking the way, away because the, this painting is called the refusing or the refusal that he's been refused to hang his artwork in the gallery. He's been rejected and the, the owner of the gallery is like smirking like <laughs> he's taking pleasure and joy at this man's sadness. So when we look at this, it should sadden the soul because of this. We all have this universal need to belong, to be affirmed, to have our work admired. So we all know what, what it's like to be rejected, right? We know it's a universal need. Let me prove it to you. Middle school. High school. And even when you're single into your twenties or thirties, right? You play this game all the way in those, whatever age group you are in there, you play this game where you look to your buddy and you're like, Hey, go ask her and see if she likes me. And if she does ask her, Hey, if my buddy asked you out, would you say yes? You know what I'm talking about, right? These are social games that protect us from rejection. Because a little rejection we can tolerate, but too much rejection can actually mortify us, harm our souls. This picture is about rejection. And there's a story of rejection in the Bible, in Mark chapter 12, and I want us to take a look at it. So open your Bibles. Don't trust me on this one. I want you to read this for yourself, because today, there's some days that, man, I give you like, here we go, there's this super upbeat, you're going to walk away encouraged. There's other Sundays where when I have to, when I grab this text, it, it might not be like, hey, happy, happy, joy, joy. You might grab some texts like today that are actual warnings to people. Today's a warning. And so I don't want you to miss it. I don't want to downplay the warning. And let me tell you why. Because pastors are really tempted to say things that people want to hear. Because you know what, pastors, we don't want to be rejected either. But the problem is this. When you get a text that is just pure warning, as a pastor, if you sugarcoat it or make it sound so good or wrap it in something nice, people miss the warning. So today, I ain't wrapping this in nothing pretty. Mark chapter 12, the context of the story. Um, You got to understand this. Jesus' popularity at this point is at an all-time high. He just marched into the city of Jerusalem and people lined the streets shouting, God save, God save. So he's becoming actually so popular that he's driving Israel's leaders to despise him. The leaders are questioning his authority. They ask, Jesus, who do you think you are acting like this? This is really important because of this. The parable he's about to tell is directed at Israel's leaders. It's not directed at all of Israel. It's not directed at his followers. It's directed at the leaders of Israel. And here's how the story goes. By the way, in this this parable, I'm going to give you four attributes, traits of God that I think are reflected in the story. And here's the first one. It's the hope of God. Okay? If you're taking notes, write this down. The hope of God. It begins this way. Jesus then began to speak to them and to them as to the Israel's leaders in parables. Here's the story. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for a wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. All right, there's the beginning of the story. Uh, the owner creates this vineyard. The vineyard is his masterpiece. So what does it take to actually create a vineyard? He goes through this list. He says he put up walls to protect the vines, the vineyard, from wild animals. That's why he would do it. Then he dug a wine press. Have you ever seen this? I mean, they, they still have them in Israel. When we went there, you they literally chisel out of rock this this pit. And it, it could be like, I don't know, eight feet by, by four feet. Then they throw all the grapes in there, and then they would get stomped underfoot. From that pit, there's a little channel that runs downhill to a larger vat. So when they stomp the grapes, all the juice runs into the larger vat. So this owner, he chisels out of rock this th- these vats so that the, the juice can be processed. Then he built a watchtower so the whole vineyard could be seen and protected from vandals or, or from wild animals. And then it says he removed the rocks. He, 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 He fixed the soil. If you've ever been to Israel, it's a lot of rock. So he removes all the rocks and he plants these vines. And after all the work is done, he hands the keys over to these tenant farmers. And the way it worked in Jesus' day is that this is exactly what happened. The the, the owner would let these tenant farmers run the place, and he would go away, and the expectation was this. The owner would get one-third to one-half of whatever it is that that vineyard produced. That's how a land lease deal worked in Jesus' day. Now, to understand the meaning of the parable, let's make sure we understand who all the characters are. Every Everyone in the story represents someone. The vineyard owner was... Yeah, see, these aren't hard questions, right? welcome to church. Like, I'm not here to stump you. The vineyard owner is God. The vineyard, though, okay, was Israel. It was God's favored nation, the one that he said, you're my own. Now, around the gate of the temple in Jesus' day, just so you believe me that the vineyard represents Israel, the gate of the temple in Jesus' day was decorated with these vines, and people could donate money and, and have a, a leaf put up there. And these vines, these, uh, these ornate vines would be covered in gold. They'd be gold leaf. It's, it's supposed to represent that Israel is always referred to in illustration as this vine. Let me just read this to you. It's Isaiah 5. And this is the description. It says, my loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up, cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut a wine press as well. Like, This is exactly what the story is. They know these leaders of Israel, they have most of the Old Testament memorized, right? Because that was their Bible. It wasn't their Old Testament. It was their Bible. It's the Jewish Bible right there. So they knew that Israel was this. And then listen to how Isaiah five goes next. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. God looked for a crop of good grapes among Israel, but it yielded only bad fruit. So ask this question. This is about the hope of God, right? This first part. What is the hope of God for Israel? The answer is that they would be fruitful, that they would produce good fruit. I mean, we still have illustrations like this, right? When someone's character is not good, they're called a bad, a bad egg. Oh, that's good. I didn't even think about that one. A bad apple, right? Two, I mean, one bad apple spoils the whole bunch, something like that. The hope of Israel is this, that there'd be a good crop. They understand that Jesus is teaching this parable and he's referring to Isaiah chapter five. So the tenant farmers, who are they? It's Israel's leaders who are in charge of the vineyard of Israel. So who's in charge? It's the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. This is the audience to whom this is speaking. Question, why does that matter? This is super critical Because too many people, they pick up the Bible and they start reading and they find like the point of the story at the end. and You're like, oh, Jesus is speaking to me. Actually, this story, the primary text, he's not speaking to us. This teaching is not for us directly. It was directly for the leaders of Israel. Now, I'm going to get you into this story even more. I'm going to walk you through the whole thing. We're going to understand it all. And then I just have one little question at the end. So for all the application, I just want you to hang on to the end and and we'll get there. I just want you to know this, that the meaning of this is designed to say the hope of God for Israel was that they would be fruitful. It kind of begs this question though, does God have an expectation and a hope for this church? Does God have a hope and an expectation for his church, his universal church all around the world? Let me read this to you. It's John 15, 8. It says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. God's expectation for Israel is now his expectation for all of his followers and his church. So doesn't it make sense that we understand what it means to be fruitful? You're like, okay, well, if there's an expectation, if you're a Christian, listen to this, if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Jesus, he has an expectation on your life then. That you be fruitful. If there's an expectation, don't you want to know exactly what it is? It's two things. The first is this. Fruitfulness is about becoming more and more like Jesus in your character. We start acting like him. I think it, it, it translates into loving the things that God loves, hating the things that he hates, and our character becoming more like him. Is that what's happening in your life? Is that's what's happening in the life of this church. The second thing is this when it comes, this call to be fruitful, I think it's this it's helping people discover the beauty of Jesus, the truth of the gospel story, so they can become followers of Jesus. Let me sum it up in two words making disciples. It's helping people who don't know who Jesus is come to know him, love him, follow him. That's what it means to be fruitful. So this is the hope of God. Now go back to the story. Back to Jesus' parable where the owner, he just sent a servant to collect what was owed him. Because this next part is about this second trait. It's the patience of God. The patience of God. Story picks up verse three. But they, the tenants, tenants, they seized him, beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. You see how progressively this is getting worse and worse and worse? The owner, he sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. What is this story about? Here's what it's about. It's not complicated. This is He's telling the story of the history of Israel and all of the prophets that God sent to the leaders of Israel, warning them. I have an expectation of you. I have an expectation of the nation of Israel. I want you to be fruitful, become more like me, help people find me. Let me just, let me give to you just a list of the prophets from the Old Testament and what happened to them. Elijah, he was driven out into the wilderness by the royal family. Micah was scourged and whipped by Israel's leaders. Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawed into two pieces, Amos was killed. Zechariah was stoned to death. John the Baptist was beheaded. Anybody want to be a servant of God? (laughs) It's a rough occupation in the Old Testament. If you wonder about this, if this is true, you can always go to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37. It gives the history of of the prophets of God. It says, they were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and, and goatskins, not popular clothing destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. This is the story of Israel, that when God sent men to warn them to say, listen, God has an expectation in your life and you are not meeting it. What'd they do with the messenger? Hate the message. Don't hate the messenger, right? No, they killed him and they beat him. Pretend, pretend for just a moment that you're back in this story of Mark 12, and you're an advisor. You're on the council to the owner of the vineyard. Question: What's your advice to him? Listen, you just have three guys beaten. Some of them killed. And then it says they sent many others. He doesn't say how many, but you just get the point. Like, this is about the patience of God. He's like, listen, I, maybe all these tenant farmers, they're not all bad. Maybe somebody will, will respond with respect at some point. He just keeps sending people. So question, if you're the advisor to him, uh, what, is, what advice would you give him? I mean, what's the reasonable thing to do? Well, what's the thing that anybody in their right mind, the appropriate thing to do, what would it be? You better go there and force and take him out, right? I mean take the gloves off. You're just you're being soft, God. You got to go in there and own this thing. But listen to the crazy, ridiculous and unreasonable and shocking thing that God does, verse 6. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all saying, They will respect my son. What? Really? Would you? Would you be like, hey, I got one son. I know they've beaten and killed all my other servants. Now I'm going to send my son. Would you send your son into that? I wouldn't. I'd be sending my army into that. I'd be sending the authorities into that. And he sends his son because... One of the traits about God is his unbelievable patience and his love for people. Verse seven, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Weird question, like, did they really think that if they killed the son, that they would take possession of the land? Let me explain to you how real estate worked in the first century. I'm married to a realtor, so I know this. By the son showing up, they're assuming that the father can't come himself because surely he would have showed up himself. He's either dead or he's too ill to come. And if this is the only son and they kill him and the father's already dead, the assumption is this. If there's no family, this land is ownerless. And in that day... If you are working the land and the land becomes ownerless, you become the new owner of the land. So they're thinking, listen, tenant farmer, that's not nearly as cool as owner. So we're going to stop acting like servants and we're going to start acting like owners and we're going to kill the son. Into this violent, rebellious group, God sends his son. Okay, we got to identify who everybody is. This is, a, this is a softball question, ready? So the son is, all right, way to go. Good work, people. And God sends Jesus into Israel with leaders who would reject him. And just a few days after Jesus tells this story, at the end of that week, Jesus would be hanging on a cross because the leaders of Israel accused him of religious crimes, and then manipulated the Roman government to have him killed. How absurd is the love and the patience of God? Charles Spurgeon, famous preacher, he he wrote this, If you reject him, he answers you with tears. If you wound him, he bleeds out cleansing. If you kill him, he dies to redeem. And if you bury him, he rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. All truth. God's love and patience with us is unbelievable. His capacity to love and endure is so much greater than anything we will ever know. But here's where most people's theology stop. God loves; God's love wins in the end, and they only take the first two attributes of God that says, "Hey, this is His hope that you're fruitful, and it, this is the hope of uh, the, the patience of God that is so enduring." And their theology stops there, hoping that life will turn out and our next life will turn out how they had hoped. But it's not where the story ends. The third trait of God is this. It's the judgment of God. And it starts in verse nine. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus answers his own question. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Huh. So who are the tenant farmers? The leaders of Israel. So God will come in, kill them, and hand that vineyard of Israel to someone else. I believe what he's describing is this, is when, the, when he was rejected by Israel's leaders and much of Israel, God's favor moves towards this church, this Gentile church, that is now his people. Anyone who will follow his son, whether Jew or Gentile, becomes the vineyard. That is God's place of blessing. Anybody who will follow Jesus and accept the forgiveness that he offers. I don't know about you, but when's the last time you considered the judgment of God? I mean, maybe some of you have, like you're really struggling in your life right now. And you're like, wow, man, if, if my life ended today, I, I think I'd really, I'd really face God's judgment." One theologian states it this way, it's entirely wrong to emphasize God's love at the expense of his holiness, his righteousness, and his avenging wrath. See, texts like this don't get a lot of airtime in the church because we want to say things that make people feel good. But see, the good news, which is called the gospel, it ain't really good unless you understand the bad news that there's a life in an attorney separated from God, that there's people outside the vineyard. So you might be thinking like, okay, this is just one story in the Bible, right? Pastor, don't make too much of a deal about one story in the Bible. Tell you what, tonight, um, would you go home tonight and just open up to Matthew chapter 25 and just read the whole chapter? There's three stories there, three parables. Each of them ends the same way. There's people who thought they were in God's family, thought they were in God's team. And each of the story ends this way with them on the outside of God's family. On the outside of the kingdom, the door's locked. It's the the parables are all about the end of times. And they're like, wait, 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 wait. Jesus, like, let us in. He's like, I don't even know you. I I thought we were good. Good, you didn't follow me. I, I didn't even know you. I had a hope for you, and I had patience with you. And yet, you acted like an owner instead of a servant. And if you want to be away from me, that's what you get in the end. And each of those parables, sit down and read it. with. If you got kids, sit down and read with your kids and try and explain that to them. You know what I think the response is in kids when they read this story? They're afraid because I think they have a better sense of the fear of God than maybe we do. For the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. So just in case you think I'm making too much of this, go read Matthew chapter 25. There's some fantastic stories that are meant to make a mark on our soul. Let me go to the fourth and final point here, this attribute of God. And it's the triumph of God. And it's found in verse 10. It says this, haven't you read this passage of scripture? This is Jesus speaking. He's back in his parable, or he, he's, the parable's kind of over. Now he does this little teaching. He says, haven't you read the passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, some of your versions, it might read capstone. I'll explain both of those. The Lord has done this and is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. So what's a Capstone. If you're building an arch of stone, the capstone is the center one. If you don't have the center one, it's the most important one because the whole thing collapses without it. A cornerstone. It sets the measurements for the straight line of this angle and this angle. So this cornerstone is the most important because everything else has to line up to it. And the text says the stone that has been rejected. It's a story about Jesus being rejected. He's going to become the capstone. He's going to become the cornerstone to the temple of God that if you reject him, you're not actually a part of God's family. So this is what Jesus is referring to. He would be rejected that week by Israel's leaders. He'd be murdered on a cross. But make no mistake, it was not just a death of a man. It was God's son who prior to his death claimed this, I will die for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm going to die in your place. And you're like, well, words are cheap. Let's see if he can do it. But he always attached this to it. But in three days, I will come back to life. By Jesus coming back to life and predicting his resurrection, he's giving us evidence that the claim that he was dying for our sins, that that part was true too how many people do you know in your life that claimed that they would come back to life and they actually did? Raise your hand. Nobody. It's just Jesus. It's the greatest claim in the history of the world. And it's the greatest historically validated event in the history of the world. Those that saw him die saw him three days later alive. So we can either accept that and accept him or we can reject him. But in rejecting him, we will find ourselves on the outside of the vineyard and the outside of the family of God. Um, Listen to Jesus' audiences, what they they recognize, verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders look for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. They got it. They weren't confused about what this meant, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. They knew exactly what he was saying. You're the owners. You're responsible for the spiritual life of God's people, and you're blowing it by rejecting Jesus. Take a look at this artwork right here. Uh, Martin Van Valkenborg, Forgive me for his whole family for massacring his name. He paints this picture of the story from Mark 12. I mean, it's hard to grab all the details, but you get the point. There's a vineyard there. There's people working in the vineyard. And there's two characters up above. It seems like one is arriving from the right, and the one to the left is rejecting him. You get these two clowns kind of down here walking, and I don't know, if you just look at their face, they're like, ha, I think we're going to get away with it. I could be making up things about this story. But once you know Mark 12, you're like, oh, well, what's the meaning? It's a beautiful vineyard. You see the tower up there to the right? And if you look all the way down, hidden in the right, bottom corner, you'll see that there's a man being killed. Martin is trying to grab all of this parable and put it into one work of art so that there might be a warning to Israel's leaders. This parable is about four things. It's about the hope of God for Israel. But it's also about the hope of God for his church, for anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. It's a story about the patience of God. But it also is a story about the judgment of God and the triumph of God. And what I mean by the triumph of God is this, he wins in the end. <laughs> Go read the book of Revelation. It's about how he wins in the end, that he's coming back one day and everybody who thought they were winning because they're like, no, it's my life, not God's life. Jesus, who cares about him? They lose in the end. And I know this can be like, man, you're like... Maybe you've never come to church before. This is your first day. You're like, dang, man, dropping some bombs today. <laughs> it's pretty harsh. It's not harsh unless it's not true. What a great gift for a warning sign to be there to say, what lies beyond this is a cliff that will take your life. Um, let's go back, Dave, to that original picture, the refusing. Do you remember how you felt when you looked at this picture? When you first saw it, like, and I explained like, oh, he's getting rejected. Like, which person did you identify with? There's only two people in the picture. I mean, probably the artist who's getting rejected, right? And with a, with a, with a title on a message, maybe you looked at your notes ahead of time. You're like, oh, this rejection. And you expected a, a message, on oh you know how to rejection proof my life right how do i deal with rejection no 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 the whole point of this artwork if i'm attaching it to mark chapter 12 is not that we're the rejected artist is that we're the guy in the shop looking at god and rejecting him god i don't want you and smirking as if we we got our lives all together god why do i need you Remember how you felt about the guy when you saw his face? You're like, man, that guy's a dirt bag. Maybe you don't talk that way or think that way. <laughs> He's a bad guy. The warning is to not be him. It's to not be the one that pushes Jesus aside in our lives. Now, I do want to be very, very clear about this. This message is first and foremost to the leaders of Israel. But does this warning have any message to the church today? I think yes. And the number one primary application to this is anybody who's going to lead God's family. Let me just quote to you one commentator. He says this, the parable has a long range application to church leaders. Who cease to be servants and stewards and seek to be owners and lords. So let me just break this down very simply. Pastors, be warned. Elders, be warned. Community group leaders, student ministry leaders, children ministry leaders, and parents, be warned. You lead a portion of God's kingdom. Maybe your vineyard isn't as big as everybody else's. This isn't a mega church. You're like, I, I don't have much influence. I got a small little community group. Three people meet once a week. And, but yeah, but you're, you're the leader. You're the one in charge. That's your vineyard. Be warned that the hope of God for you, he has hope for you, that you'll be fruitful. They reflect the beauty of Jesus to others. And in doing so, you'll be making disciples. Parents, you got a vineyard to reflect the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, and there's an expectation of fruitfulness there. Luke says it this way. For everyone who has been given much, let me try that again. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who's been entrusted with much, much will be asked for. You thought that came from Spider-Man, huh? Have you rejected God's expectation for you? And you might be wondering this, well, how? Like, I've never rejected God. Like, God, get away from me. I didn't kill Jesus, I wasn't even around then. Let, Let me give you some ways that maybe we've rejected God. And the one, the first one is the most important. Have you rejected God's salvation for you? Jesus comes and he dies on a cross. And he predicts his own death and he predicts his own resurrection. But he says, I'm going to die for the forgiveness of the world. Have you rejected that? Do you think you're good enough to get to heaven? No one is good enough to get to heaven. You're like, I'm not as bad as that guy back there. Okay, so you're a better guy who's outside of Jesus's family then. (laughs) It's not the point, right? The point is that we've all done things to violate our own code of ethics, much less God's code of ethics. How can God let us into heaven, into a perfect place, if we haven't had that forgiveness and that perfection given to us? If you haven't done that, if you haven't accepted the gift of salvation, don't reject it today. It's open to you because God loves you. And it begins by just saying, God, forgive me. I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross as payment for my sins. And now I get your, innocent and you, your innocence and you get my sin. But it's not just forgiveness. It's beginning a relationship with God. Don't reject him today. The second thing is this. Maybe we're rejecting God's lordship. You pray to prayer one day and you're like, I'm in, I'm good. And then you go live your life however you want. And you act like the owner of your life. No, no, no. God's the owner of your life when you're in his family. Does he have last say in your life? Does he have first say? Or do you just live however you want? Now, I want to be super clear about this because some pastors have taught this wrong. Maybe you've heard this growing up. If, if Jesus isn't the Lord of everything, then he's the Lord of nothing. Have you heard that? It sounds really good from up front. Man, if Jesus isn't the Lord of everything in your life, then he's the Lord of nothing. Dang it, that's not true. You won't find that in the Bible. What they're trying to say is this, is like, give God your whole life. Yes, that's the intent. You know when you're gonna get it perfectly right? When you get to heaven. I'm a piece of work, people. (laughs) And, And I mean that how it's supposed to sound. There's moments where I am so broken. And so I just have thoughts and actions, and attitudes that don't reflect the heart of God. You know why? Because I'm like you. (laughs) I'm not perfect, but I'm hoping that as the Holy Spirit works inside me, slowly but surely, I'm reflecting the character of Christ. And even in my brokenness, God will use me to lead other people to know him. I'm trying to let him be the Lord of everything, but to be honest, there's moments where I take back the reins of my life and I act In ways that aren't of God. So, really, is that saying to me, you know what, Scott? Since you don't act like he's the Lord of everything, then he's the Lord of nothing in your life. No, it's not true. This process called sanctification means that God's not done with me yet. Are you with me so far? But there is an abusing of his grace that says, I don't really care what he says because I think I'm going to heaven anyways. I'm going to do whatever I want. What if we're rejecting God's holiness? What if we're rejecting God's plan for our life? What if we're rejecting God's authority and we think we get to call the shots? What if we reject God's word and we're like, hey God, I know you gave us a great gift in your word, but you know what, whatever. I don't care what it says. Maybe we're rejecting his word. Maybe we're rejecting God's expectation for being fruitful. You know what, God, there's a lot of people around. They can do your work. I'm just not very good at it. Don't reject the expectation on your life to be fruitful. Maybe it's rejecting God's people. You're like, I'm gonna do life on my own. I don't need anybody else around me. That's such a lie. God created us for relationship with him and relationship in community. You need him. So let me wrap this up right now. I think Mark 12 is a warning to Israel's leaders. And it's a warning to the leaders of the church, no matter how big your vineyard is. I think it's got to be a warning, though, to every believer that God has a hope for your life. You can reject that hope, but you're going to miss the goodness of God. You know, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, it's about Aslan the lion and these kids following him. And at one point, the little girl asks, Aslan, she's kind of afraid of him. Aslan, is is he safe? And the person in the story says, oh, Aslan? I mean, Aslan's the lion, the Jesus figure, right? They go, no, no, Aslan's not safe, but he's good. What he's trying to communicate is this. Let's stop pretending like Jesus is soft and just always loving. Yes, he's all loving. But if you miss his judgment and his wrath and miss the warning, maybe you're not gonna realize that you've rejected him. Mark 12 is the warning, and I don't want to dress it up with anything other than that. To say, don't reject him, first of all. But if you accept him, don't reject the life that he has for you, because it's not a safe life, but it's a good life, because he's good. And he has a plan for you. Can I just say this? If you've rejected, have yet to accept Jesus, do it today. I already mentioned how to do it bow your head and you say, God, forgive me. I accept that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins on the cross. And today I join your family because of your grace on my life. And from this day forward, I walk with you. I'm no longer the owner of my life. I'm your servant. If you want to do that, I'd invite you to pray that right now. Let's bow our heads and pray. God, I thank you so much For your patience with me. um, I am always stunned that you would allow me to have any kind of fruitfulness with other people. And Lord, I pray that for those that are sitting here today, that if anybody has not accepted you, that they would cross that line of faith. But I pray for those in this room too, God, that maybe they have rejected your word, your authority, your holiness, your way of life or rejected the mission that you've called them to, to make disciples. I pray we would confess that wholeheartedly and take every step we need to take to live in a fresh new way with you. And I pray that this prayer doesn't just end and we go about our business today, but somehow, God, you would put your finger on the hearts of people in this room that we might be different and you would empower that. And if you want that church, If you desire that today, would you say amen?